welcome to Shelter Cove Online. We are so glad that you're joining us today for this sermon. We hope and pray that this message encourages you, that you learn something, that you enjoy it. But more than that, we just pray that God would move in your life, that he would reveal some more of himself to you today. If you would like to respond to this message in any way, you can contact us at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text message at 209-340-3115. Have an amazing rest of your day. Take your Bibles and join me in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at the first seven verses of this text today, and we are going to be talking about the first major development for humanity following the creation. Our world is a mess. Are we in agreement on that? Gets messier every single day, doesn't it? All you got to do is turn on your TV, turn on your computer, and you can see the dumpster fire that is planet Earth ironic since we've looked at this creation account where God describes his work as very good. How did we go from very good to all this? Our text has the answer to that question, and we're going to see it today. Now that phrase, uh, it is good, or and God saw that it was good, that shows up seven times in the creation account here in the early part of Genesis. Uh, The only deviation from that is when God looks at Adam and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. And God steps in and he becomes a matchmaker. And so God then completes, he corrects the one thing that is said to not be good about his creation, which is not to say that creation had a flaw. It merely was incomplete. And so God completes Adam. You remember the movie Jerry Maguire? Tom Cruise says to Renee Zellweger, you complete me. You know, and she's like, you had me at hello. You remember this? I only watch rom-coms if there's football in it. Anyway... Adam could say that literally when God presents Eve to him. That, that couple, man, they had the perfect marriage. It's been said that Adam, he never had to hear Eve talk about all the men she could have married. <laughs> Eve never had to listen to Adam at dinner time and say, well, this isn't how mom used to make it, you know? Wouldn't it have been great if we could have just read, and Adam and Eve lived happily ever after? But it was not to be, because in chapter three, everything Everything is going to change. Most young couples, when they get married, their first year hurdle is something like managing a household for the first time and and assigning responsibilities uh, to one or the other and and juggling romance with a hectic schedule and learning how to uh, navigate conflict and all that. This couple, their first year hurdle was the curse of sin and the downfall of creation. That's a lot of pressure on one marriage. And we're going to look at how that unfolds in our text today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon our time and your word as we see, as we learn how this world came to be in the state that it's in. And a central figure involved in that downfall that is still active today, show us, Lord, how we are to respond to that being today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's break down how this goes down. Let's look at verse one of Genesis chapter three. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Up till now, we've only been introduced to three characters in this story. You've got God, you've got the man, Adam, and you've got the woman. And we call her Eve, but we don't yet know her name in the text. We learn it later. But the God, the man, and the woman, that's it. Now we're introduced to a fourth character, and he's called the serpent. And we're going to see that this serpent has ill intent, and he is going to go after this woman. 
Now, who is this serpent? What is this serpent? What is his identity? Where did he come from? These are the questions that are raised, and there's no answer to these questions in this text. But if you recall growing up in school, sometimes you might ask a question, and the teacher would say, the answer is in the back of the book. Literally, the answer to this question about the serpent is in the back of your Bible. I want to show you a passage from Revelation chapter 12. It says in verse 7, Now war rose in heaven. Michael, that's the archangel. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now here's the answer to our question about the serpent's identity. Verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. World. So who is this ancient enemy that surfaces in Eden? In your notes, my friends, it's none other than Satan himself, that ancient serpent. I love that we have a question raised by the first book of the Bible, and we find the answer in the last book of the Bible. The entirety of Scripture is just a beautiful thing. But here in Revelation 12, the serpent is called the devil, and he's called Satan, which is a Hebrew name, means adversary, but that was not his original name. Uh, how did this person come into being? Did God create Satan? Did God make Satan evil? Those are actually two separate questions, as it turns out. But we need to fill these gaps in by looking at a couple of other biblical passages. I want to show you Ezekiel 28. Here's what it says in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. God's speaking to his prophet. He says, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord, the prince of Tyre. What is Tyre? Tyre is uh, an ancient seaport. It's a Mediterranean city in the ancient world, very important seaport. And there is a king, there is a ruler, a prince, as it says here, but ruler is a better interpretation of this city. And we know that he's a human because it goes on. It says, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, Yet you are but a man, and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. And so this is, this is a man, says so right there. He is a human ruler who thinks he's a God, he's very proud, and judgment is pronounced on him in this passage. But if you were to read on, you get down to verse 11, take a look. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise up a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Different word, Hebrew word melech. Not prince, king. King is more powerful than a prince. So this, this person has more authority. He has more power than the initial person that we read about. Is this another human ruler? Let's find out. It goes on and says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Watch this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. I assure you, there are no human rulers at the time of this writing that were in Eden. And it says, every precious stone was your covering. And it goes on and lists all these gemstones with reflective surfaces, facets that reflect light. And it says, uh, crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings, right? On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an appointed guardian. Actually, it's anointed. Guardian cherub. An anointed guardian cherub. What is a cherub? That's an angel. You maybe have sung a hymn. That talks about 
cherubim and seraphim. Those are angelic beings. This is not a man. It's not an earthly ruler. He was in Eden. He is referred to as an angel. It goes on, it says, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And so there's a few things that we learn about this this cherub, uh, this angelic being who was in Eden. He had the seal of perfection. God had granted him authority. And so he was the wisest of all God's creation. He was granted authority to administrate creation from an angelic perspective and incorporated into his role. It appears, as we read in verse 13, it says, uh, uh, crafting in gold were your settings and engravings. If you had a King James Version or something, it might say, uh, instead of those words, timbrels and pipes. Those are musical instruments created for worship. And so this being was the worship leader of heaven. He led the hosts of angels in the glorifying of Yahweh. That was his job. But as he does that job, he develops a taste for worship himself. And something happens. I want to show you another passage. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. If you had a King James Version, it wouldn't say day star. It would say, how you are fallen, Lucifer, Son of Dawn. Lucifer is a Latin name. Literally means light bearer. If you know Spanish, the word for light, luz, comes from the the root of this Latin word right here. And his attire is described in the previous passage as having all these reflective surfaces, if you recall, these gemstones that would reflect light back onto God. So light bearer makes sense. But that is not the name used in the original text. This is a Hebrew text. The Hebrew word used there is not Latin. It's Hebrew. It's the, the name Halel. And Halel, we don't know what it means, but it sounds like another Hebrew word, halal. Halal means to shine. And it also means to boast. And when we worship, what are we doing? We are boasting in the Lord. And so he is the worship leader of heaven. And as he boasts in the Lord, watch what happens. Verse 13, it says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I, 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 I. Houston, we have a problem. You see what's happened here? This being, this angelic cherub, who is the wisest and most powerful of all God's angels, whose name means to boast, as he is boasting about God, he begins to boast about himself. And God will not stand for that. And judgment is imposed. Look at verse 15. It says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Sheol is a Hebrew name for what you and I call hell. And so this Halel, this Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, he is shut out of heaven. He's cast out of the Lord's presence. You say, Pastor Scott, how do you know that's Satan? It doesn't say Satan. It says Halel or Lucifer or what have you. Uh, well, we learn from Jesus himself. In Luke 10, he had sent the disciples out to do ministry in the city. They come back. They've been casting demons out of people. And they're celebrating that. And it's in that context that Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he goes on to tell them about the authority they're granted to cast out demons. And so we tie this event of an angelic being falling from heaven to the being that you and I call Satan. 
which means adversary. He has gone from being the day star to being our adversary. And we find him in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. And here he is, but he appears as a serpent. What does a serpent have to do with Satan? Well, I assure you, Satan did not appear to Eve in his actual corrupted, fallen state. He appeared as something familiar. He appeared as something that already had shown up in the garden. Uh, The Hebrew word for serpent is nakash. Nakash. And it literally just means any kind of reptile. Doesn't have to be a slithering snake like we often see in paintings and pictures. Okay? So I don't think this was necessarily what you and I think of as a snake. I believe this was an actual flesh and blood creature that was reptilian. And I believe it was upright. Because it's not until later that he's cursed by God to crawl on his belly. And so I don't believe that he's crawling now. Does he stand on limbs? I don't know. But I believe that he is familiar to Eve. And so he is described as the craftiest of all the creatures that the Lord had made. What makes him the craftiest? He is possessed by the most intelligent, uh, most powerful spiritual being that God had ever created. Satan has assumed the form of this nakash in the garden right there. And he speaks to Eve. And Eve is not alarmed. Why should she be? You and I cringe when we see lizards and snakes and such. Uh, She'd have no reason to be. There's no negative connotations associated with those creatures at this point in human history. You say, yeah, Pastor Scott, but this one talks. (laughs) Well, I can't, I don't know what to tell you there. I don't know. I mean, She doesn't appear to be freaked out. Maybe she was, and it just doesn't say. But the point is, he begins to speak, and as he does, we can sense his agenda. Because now we know who he is. We know where he comes from. We know the axe that he has to grind. And he starts to talk. And he goes on, he says, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And what he's doing in your notes, he's undermining God's word. He's undermining God's word. God's word is central in the creation account. He speaks things into existence. Let there be, and there was, right? And so this serpent undermines God's word. And I want you to notice, this is the first question in the Bible. Never before has a question been answered or asked or answered until now. Now, does that mean questions are bad? No, there's nothing wrong with questions as long as they're honest questions. This is not an honest question. This is a deliberately misleading question. And I want you to sense the subtext. First of all, the way he refers to God is disrespectful. We learned early on God's name in Genesis. In the beginning, God Elohim is the name. It it is the plural name of God. It refers to the triune uh, Godhead, the, the three persons of God. So it's kind of a generic name for God. In chapter two, we're introduced to another name, Yahweh, which is the proper name of the Father, and it translates as Lord. And so by Genesis 2, from verse 4 on, he's always referred to as the Lord God. Tremendous reverence and respect for the name Yahweh. It was exceptionally holy to the Jews. Whenever the scribes would write scripture and they'd get to Yahweh, they'd throw their pen away and get a new pen and start writing. Serpent dispenses with the name Yahweh. Doesn't even use it. Just calls him Elohim, the more generic name. And then he intentionally misquotes God. God God didn't say that they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. Did God say that? No, just the opposite. Eat from from all the trees. 
There's this one little tree. And so he is challenging God's word. And by the way, his MO has not changed. He's still challenging God's word today. Is that true? Whenever a Christian young person goes into a classroom and a liberal Bible professor says, well, you know, the Bible's just man-made. It's been mistranslated over the centuries. That's the voice of the serpent. Whenever you read a blog and somebody's saying, well, the Bible's just allegorical. It's poetic. It's way, you could translate it however you want. It really doesn't make any difference. That's the voice of the serpent. Whenever somebody says, you know, the Bible just reflects the cultural understandings of its day. It's hopelessly outdated for today's culture. That's the voice of the serpent. And so we see him undermining the word of God. Second thing, he, he begins to question God's love. He questions God's love. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jeremy talked about the method of God, how God offers vast permission. He offers one minor prohibition, but there is a severe penalty associated with that prohibition. He told Adam and Eve, you see all this? This is yours, enjoy all of it. There's this one tree. Don't eat from that one tree. If you do, you'll surely die. Vast permission, minor prohibition, severe penalty. Satan has his own spin on that, and he seeks to ignore God's vast permission, just pretends it's not even there, just doesn't even, doesn't even bring it up, and then he exaggerates the prohibition. God said don't eat from any tree in the garden. He's such a liar. And you hear the incredulity in the voice. Did God really say no trees? Really? Now, Eve is new at this. She's never been posed a question before. And she certainly never had cause to question God and why he would prohibit something before. Have you ever wondered why God put the tree in the garden in the first place? Like if he, if he didn't want him to eat of it, why'd he put it there? What did I say a few weeks ago about God's chief purpose. What is God's primary concern? It's his glory. God wants more than anything to be worshiped. That's what he is primarily concerned with. Our greatest priority is worship. How were Adam and Eve to worship God in the garden? By singing Waymaker? He had given them everything. Enjoy. You have dominion. You have a will. But he gave them a prohibition so that they would be accountable to him so that they had an opportunity to exercise the will that he had given them to obey him and thereby worship him. Obedience is worship. You can sing all the songs that we sing. You can know them by heart, but if you have a perpetually disobedient life, you're just making noise. Adam and Eve were to demonstrate worship of God through obeying this one, one command. And so Eve has posed this question, and she's new at this. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. I mean, she's kind of stumbling her way into a rebuttal here. She corrects him to her very minor credit, but she's very naive. She's Eve, and she's naive. I mean, you've heard the expression, well, I wasn't born yesterday. Well, she very pretty much was. I mean, she is days old, weeks at the most, right? And yet, she has a knowledge. She's got a knowledge of the creator of of this garden, of this universe, of her, of her husband. She knows God. And let me tell you, that knowledge is enough to field this question from Satan. And there is a correct response, and she doesn't give it. 
She says, well, God did say we could eat from the trees of the garden. But she goes on in verse three, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden and neither shall you touch it lest you die. And you can almost hear her stumbling her way through this. And I want you to notice a couple things here. Eve's already gone wrong. We think of the fall as eating that fruit. The fall is already happening right here. She's talking to this serpent. She's conversing with her tempter. This serpent who has already questioned God's word and character. I mean, he first he deliberately misquotes God. That means he's a liar. God has already said, everything in my creation is very good. That means every creature knows what God has said about his creation. And the fact that this serpent has said otherwise is your first clue that he's up to no good. Secondly, there's a tone in his question that implies that God doesn't really love Eve. Man, he's strict, isn't he? Don't you think? Can't eat from any tree in the garden? He must not love you to prohibit your enjoyment that way, don't you think? pretty strict what should Eve's response to this serpent have been get lost snake I don't know you I know God God's good God has given us everything you've given us nothing I'm out of here but what does she do she tries to reason with him she gives him facts she converses with her tempter folks don't converse with your tempter you're not going to reason your way out of temptation. What if, what if Potiphar's wife, when she came to Joseph and said, Joseph, don't you want to get with this? <laughs> what if Joseph had said, Madam, I think the thing to do would be for you and I to sit down and to have a dialogue about how and why that might be detrimental? Right. No, what did he do? He ran. he ran. He got the heck out of Dodge. That's what Eve should have done here. She should have rebuked him and left. She should, have, she should have asserted the character of God. Did Eve say anything about God's character? It's been under attack by this serpent. It's been maligned by this serpent. She says nothing about God's love. He's insinuated that, that God doesn't care for her. Well, she knows better than that. And yet, what does she spend her time talking about? Well, God did say, not, wait, God is good. God is good. Listen to me. Your debating ability will not be enough to get you out of temptation. Your deliverance from temptation comes from your steadfast, unwavering trust in the character of God. We need to know who we are and who he is and live like it's true because it is. But what she does instead is she says, well, God said, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did God say that? God never said, don't touch it. Oh, I don't think it's a good idea to touch it. You know, hey, don't eat from that tree. If you do, you'll die. Okay, but we can touch it, right? You know? <laughs> but what's the point? The point is, when you ascribe something very specific to God that he did not say, and you attach death to it, what is that? That's legalism. Don't do this specific sin, and you'll, or you'll go to hell. If you dress a certain way, you'll go to hell. If you go to that kind of church, you'll go to hell. If you read this translation of the Bible, you'll go to hell. Legalism. And Eve is focused on if I do this, I'll die. And there's no consideration of God's love. If you, if you only focus on the justice and not the love, you have an incomplete view of God. And she's starting to question. As these words come out of her mouth, she realizes how harsh they sound. Wait, no, we can't, we can't even touch it. 
And that is strict. And I think Satan knows that she's starting to ponder this. And so he speaks up, verse four, the serpent said to the woman, oh, you will not surely die. No. He's straight up calling God a liar now. I mean, it's unequivocal. And he knows he can get away with it because he's already planted the seeds and Eve hasn't rebuked him yet. And what he's doing, he's dismissing God's justice. In your notes, he's dismissing God's justice. See, Eve has only seen God's justice. She's not seen his love whatsoever. She has this view of, I need to obey out of fear. Now, let me tell you something. God is to be feared. God is to be revered. His justice is real. But if you don't understand that he loves you and everything he has commanded is in your best interest because of his love for you, then you have an incomplete view of God. But she's operating in fear, and Satan opts to take that fear away. He says, you will not surely die. Eve, don't you know there's no such thing as damnation? There's no such thing as eternal punishment. Is he still saying these things today? Yeah, you know where he's saying them? In the church. It's happening all over. Key doctrines are being dismantled as we speak in Christian churches all over the world that there's no such thing as punishment. There's no such thing as hell. Oh, God is love. God is kind. He wouldn't send anyone to hell. He loves you. Hell is just a figment. Hell is just a man-made construct. Hell is, is literally a, a dump outside of Jerusalem. It's not a, an eternal place of torment. God would send no one to, to any place like that. He's love. He, and, and sin sin is just something that man came up with to keep other people in check. God wants you to be happy. Don't you know that? What's right for you is right for you. What's right for me is right for me. And God just wants us to, to, to live our best life, to live our truth. And truth, there's no absolute truth. It's, it's whatever. It's whatever works for any type of person in any setting. And, and that because there's no such thing as sin, well, there's no such need for an atonement. For sure, I mean, atonement, that's, that's the most harmful doctrine. I mean, I mean, the fact that God would be so bloodthirsty that he would demand a sacrifice, are you serious? And, and what's worse is this idea that he would put his own son to death. What kind of a bloodthirsty father is that? There's no sin, there's no hell, there's no death, Eve. This is good news. That's what gospel means, good news. False gospel, false gospel. And so she starts questioning. Logically, she's questioning, well, if there's no such thing as sin and there's no such thing as death or hell, why doesn't God want me to have this fruit? And Satan, sensing this, answers, verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is he doing in your notes? He's impugning God's character. Oh, he's already questioned God's character, but now he is claiming there's a massive flaw in it. He's saying God doesn't want you to eat that fruit because you see, God hates competition. He's a jealous God. You see, he, he, he wants to hoard all the power and the knowledge and the glory. God's a glory hog, okay? There, I've said it. And, and, and he's, so, he's so selfish. He hates rivals. He can't stand anybody approaching his level. No, no, we can't have that, can we, God? You, you hear the bitterness? 
he loathes God. He is so embittered and warped by being shut out of heaven, he'll do whatever it takes to hurt God. And he, and he could do that, he thinks, by corrupting God's new favorite greatest creation. Oh, this, this, this greatest creation, humanity. I used to be God's greatest creation, and now it's this? I'll show you, God. I will, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna mess it up. And he's successful. And the reason he's successful is because part of what he's saying is true. Eve will be like God. Oh, she won't have all his power and authority. No, she won't be able to create things out of nothing. But she'll be like him because she'll know good and evil. She'll know good and evil. And by the way, he never hid that from her. He never hid from her that he didn't want her to know good and evil. It's in the name of the tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Satan wasn't lying about the fact that God didn't want her to know those things. He was lying about God's motivation, God's reason for not wanting her to know those things. He's such a liar, and he's the best at that job that has ever been. Because in verse 6, she buys it. It says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She wants to be like God. And what this is, is the next step of the strategy. In your notes, awaken pride. Pride is now awake. I want to be like God. Hey, wasn't that what got Satan kicked out of heaven? I will be like the Most High. Now, she's rationalized it. It seems like a worthy pursuit. I mean, after all, she's probably thinking, well, I love God. I want to be like God. I want to honor God. What better way to honor God than to be like him? Seems perfectly wonderful to want to be like God. And you know something? God does want us to be like him. But here's the difference. The problem with Eve's desire is that she's using it to rationalize her disobedience. You don't get to be like God by disobeying God. The irony is that in Eve's case, she was already like God in the sense that there was no evil in her. But now there is. And she doesn't know evil because she ate some magical fruit she knows evil because of the action. There's nothing wrong with that tree. That tree was good. That was a good tree. Everything in God's creation was good. It was the disobedience that made her knowledgeable of that which God never intended for us to know. And it says, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where's he been? It might occur to you something is off kilter here. When God created everything, there was a sequence. He created the man, and then he created the woman. When Satan tempts, he starts with the woman, and then he goes on to the man. And so the question you might have is, in the New Testament, when we talk about the fall, our sinful state is always connected to Adam's sin. But here we read Edom's, uh, that Eve sinned first. So what's the deal there? Why is our sinfulness connected to Adam and not Eve? Well, it's clear from Scripture, Adam is the head of uh, the human race. And this apparently is some divine design for the genders. has nothing to do with male superiority. It's about God's intentional plan. Uh, when these two hide from God, as we're going to see, God will call the man out. He will question him first. 
because he's the head of the race. 1 Corinthians 15 says he represented all of us so that when he sinned, we all sinned. 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And male chauvinists might point to that verse and say, see, see, Adam was not deceived and she was deceived in sin and became a transgressor. That doesn't absolve Adam of anything. Adam was not deceived because he was physically present when God made the command, don't eat of this tree. Eve hadn't been created yet. Adam was not directly duped by a serpent. Eve was. If anything, Adam should have stepped into that role and said, we are not doing this. But he failed. And he was culpable. And because he represented all of us, we are culpable. And in verse seven, here are the repercussions. It says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See this pathetic little response right here? See, the results of sin in your notes are this, immediate shame and man-made, and I would add insufficient solutions. Immediate shame and man-made insufficient solutions. We always want to do it our way. I can take care of my mess. I can sew this little fig leaf together and that'll cover me. But it won't. It won't. I just brought my family back from Missouri. We visited a college campus that my son got accepted to. We're very excited about that. We made a little stop in a little town called Pineville, Missouri. You blink, you miss it. Now, who lives in Pineville, Missouri? Oh, just my 91-year-old grandfather. I call him Papaw. And as my kids explored Papa's farm, he lives on top of a hill in a house that he built 50-some years ago in the middle of the Ozarks, and he overlooks this, this farm. And when I was a kid, I used to go there in the summer, and he had cows and chickens and crops, and I used to hop on Papa's four-wheeler. And I'd start at the top of that hill, and I'd race down this gravel road, and I'd skid out, and I'd do some jumps and whatnot, and then I'd come up through the woods and up this back road, up the back side of that hill, and I'd just race around that property, and I'd go increasingly faster and I remember my family told me Scott slow down slow down you're gonna get hurt and I remember thinking don't tell me slow down you leave me alone I'm, I'm having fun I know what I'm doing I've got this I've done this lots I just want to I just want to do this the way that I want to do it and I remember I was racing down that gravel road down that hill and I'm pedal to the metal, and I get to the bottom, and there's a concrete slab that kind of juts out a little bit and I hit that sucker and I got air in the middle of my arc, I have a thought, I've made a horrible mistake. Because <laughs> I could sense the rear tires rotating up over my head. This sucker's going end over end. And so I ditch instinctively. And I hit the ground hard, and I rolled a few times, and there's a cloud of, of dust. And this four-wheeler lands on its handlebars, bounces up, and comes down on all four tires. It's still running. All happened very quickly, blink of an eye. And my first immediate thought is shame. Did my parents see me flip this four-wheeler? And so I think, I gotta hide. I gotta go. I gotta get out of here. I get on that sucker and I drive into the woods and I hide in the woods. My family did see me from the house and they raced down that hill to find, I don't know, what they think is maybe a corpse. But I'm not there. I'm hiding out in the, in the woods. I can see them from a distance. And so I devise a plan. I'm gonna cover my, my, my mess. 
and I'm going to creep up slowly up the backside of that hill to Papa's house and get in there and clean myself up, and they'll never be the wiser. But my stupid little brother ruined it. He spots me, and he runs over, and he goes, what'd you do? And I go, what? I'm trying to, I'm trying to look cool. What? He's like, did you flip the four-wheeler? I'm like, no. Why, 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 would, why, would, why would you say that? I got dirt all over me. I got gravel down the back of my pants. I got blood dripping down. And I'm still sticking to my stupid little cover story that anybody could see right through. This guilty pair right here, their pathetic fig leaf is not going to cut it. And what's going to happen next week in the text is that God is going to give a very visual demonstration of a covering. It will involve a sacrifice. It will involve the shedding of blood. And they will be covered. And it will be emblematic of another covering yet to come through his son, Jesus Christ. And that covering will last forever. And it will be sufficient. And by the way, Jesus Christ in Matthew is tempted by the same tempter that went after Eve. Satan himself tempted Jesus and he used the same MO, same exact method. Hey, Jesus, you hungry? Why don't you turn these stones to bread? Hey, Jesus, you want to prove your worth? Why don't you go to the top of the temple, throw yourself down? You will not surely die. Hey, Jesus, you see all this? I'll give you all this if you'll just do what I say. If you'll just worship me. Jesus didn't cave like Eve. What did he do? He he affirmed the character and the word of his father. Because he knew him. And he knew he was good. He said, it is written. It is written. And he affirmed the goodness of God. And then he told the snake to get lost. You say, Pastor Scott... That's Jesus. I can't do that. You don't know the temptation. You don't know my weakness. It's too powerful. I'm not strong enough. I know. I'm not either. But we're not alone. You're not alone. Christian, if you have the Lord Jesus living in you, he has proven that he can withstand it. And when you're tempted, you rely on him and you do the opposite of Satan's strategy. What does he do and how do we respond? Take a look. When Satan undermines God's word, we claim the word of God. When Satan questions God's love, we embrace God's love. When Satan dismisses God's justice, we understand God's justice. When Satan impugns God's character, we trust God's character. And when Satan tries to awaken pride, we rebuke it and we flee. Because Jesus Christ has empowered us to do that and he alone can crush the head of the serpent. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you for this powerful truth. We have an ancient enemy. We need to take him seriously, but we also need to recognize that you are more powerful than he. And we ask your victory to be with everyone in this room this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.